The word of God from Mark. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talita Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated this morning. It is my privilege to introduce to you a friend I've known for many, many years. Um, he has uh, served in a great number of places. He currently serves for Geneva Benefits Group, which is part of our denominational support for pastors and leaders in our denomination. Uh, they help arrange uh, a variety of things that are just good services to have available, retirement strategies, all those sorts of things. But he wasn't always in that line of work. Um, he has that extra math part of his brain that I was left without. Um, but John is also someone who has done a lot of pastoring, including a long stint pastoring a church in California. So this morning, it is my privilege and my pleasure to introduce to you Reverend John Medlock. John, come on up. Good morning, Denver Prez. It is my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Jason. Um, I, I travel 
quite a bit for my work and I have the opportunity to speak at a variety of churches. And I really don't take lightly the fact that you all are welcoming me and giving me this chance. And so um, thank you. I'm gonna be reflecting this morning on Mark chapter five. We heard the, the reading, the New Testament reading earlier today. Um, and, and so that's the passage we're gonna think about together this morning. So I have, I have two sets of, of kids. I have an, a, a group of three young adult kids. And then we also have three um, adopted kids who are, who are much younger, who still live with us at home. Um, but in this, in this season, it's easy for us to think about like differences between kid sets. And we were, we were laughing one day, my kids now, my little kids now have like electronic stuff in their room and, um, you know, things that help them do stuff like, for instance, tell time. When my big kids were younger, all we had was like a digital alarm clock. And my kids had a wake-up time. They had a bedtime, but they also had a time that they were, no, they were not allowed to come out of their room until, right? And so we had trying to figure out like how to, when they were, when they were very young, we were trying to figure out like how to let them know because they weren't great at telling time. So what we did is we took an, just a digital clock and we took blue painter's tape and we taped it over the minute hand and we drew a seven on the tape. And we said, when the two numbers match, that's when you can come out of your room, right? And so it usually worked pretty well. The kids got it fairly quickly and they would stay in their rooms until seven o'clock in the morning. And um, for the most part, all was well, but every once in a while it wasn't, right? Every once in a while you'd hear, and I remember this um, particularly my, my oldest, when he was really little, I remember one day hearing him crying and you know, kind of carrying on and fussing and calling. So I went in and I said, buddy, what, what's going on? Do you, are you sick? No. I said, well, did you, did you have a bad dream? No. I said, well, what's, what's going on then? And he looked, I remember he looked at the clock and he said, the number won't ever say seven. Right? The number won't ever say seven. I'm waiting, but the time won't ever come. I thought, welcome to being human, right? Because we are people who are bound by time. Uh, the philosopher James K. Smith says this, we are mortal, not just because we die, but because we are the sort of creatures whose very being is lived in time. Being mortal means to be temporal. In other words, we're all that kid aren't we? They're all that kid waiting for a time to come, just mired in the uncertainty of the in-between. The church my family and I attend in Atlanta is in a season where they're between lead pastors. And there is a lot of um, anxiety. How long is this season gonna last? What does it mean to be faithful in between? 
Um, are we going to be okay? And the worst part is the uncertainty, right? The, the, the worst part is not knowing how long it's going to take. Because I think if you could look the congregation in the eye and say, this is going to take nine months, or this is going to take 13 months, then everybody could say, okay, we know what to expect. That's going to be hard, but we can deal with that. But we can't do that. Because we don't know. And the uncertainty can be maddening. So I want to ask you this morning, as, as we get started, to reflect on something. Just take a moment and reflect on this question. What are you waiting for? Where do you find yourself saying, if only something, if only something would happen, then everything would be okay then I would have peace, then I could find rest. My friends, to be human is to wait, it's to wonder, it's to worry that the clock will never say seven, it's to live in the fear that the time will never come, that the desires of our hearts will remain unmet, Mark 5, which we heard read for us earlier, is a story of two people who are waiting. They're longing for relief. They know exactly how they would fill in the blank, if only something. But the story illustrates two kinds of waiting, and that's how I want to kind of divide the way we think about this passage this morning. Um, on the one hand, we see a man who is waiting in a crisis that was thrust upon him. On the other hand, we see a woman who had been waiting for years. So I'm going to call those two things crisis waiting and chronic waiting. And I want us to see how Jesus interrupts both of those people to bring hope and to bring peace and to reorient the desires of their hearts. So first of all, um, the woman that we see in, in waiting in a crisis. And so here, the setting helps a little bit here. Um, this is the point in Mark's gospel where Jesus is getting really, really popular. Um, he had been traveling all over the region doing healings and teaching and um, proclaiming the word of God and casting out demons and doing all of these things. And he had gotten a huge following. He's, think, think of it this way, he's the hot new rabbi in town. And he's holding an impromptu rally. It's, you know, a generation ago, if Billy Graham rolled into town and held a, held a convention in the local high school football stadium, right? Everybody wants to be there, right? And so that's Jesus. Right now he's popular, he's in demand, he's doing his thing. Um, in verse 22, he's interrupted by this man named Jairus. Um, Jairus is given the title here in the text, the leader of the synagogue, which is actually a formal title. It could be capitalized. He's, the leader of the synagogue was an office. And 
It was the person who was responsible for overseeing the worship in the Jewish synagogue. The songs that they sang, he was the one who made sure that the scrolls um, of the scripture were arranged in the appropriate liturgical order and that there were appropriate people to read and teach from them. And he was also the person who was sort of overseeing the orthodoxy to make sure that the practices of the synagogue were in line with the historic faith. And so here we know some things about Jairus because he held this office. He was a man of standing. He would have been a Pharisee, um, which means he would have been morally upright and religiously um, scrupulous and orthodox. He would have been a person of status. He would, have, he would have had to be politically connected to hold that office. He would have very likely been a person of great wealth and social connections and influence. In other words, he would have been, he's a pillar of the community. He was a guy who had it all. And none of that mattered. Because as he comes to Jesus in verse 23, he says, my daughter, my little daughter is near death. My little daughter is near death. In other words, Jairus, this man of wealth and status and influence and power, his comfortable life has been upended. And maybe for the very first time, he feels what it means to be powerless. He feels what it means to be confronting a crisis that is beyond his control, that is out, it is out of reach of his money, it's indifferent to his rank, it's unresponsive to his power, right? Jairus is waiting in the midst of an unexpected crisis that has been thrust on him. Like a parent who gets a call at two in the morning that their child is in the emergency room and they rush to the hospital fearful and they wait, feverishly doing nothing at a thousand miles an hour as the world swirls around them and their hearts pound and their minds race with the worst case scenarios and the solution must come now because doesn't God see? Doesn't he care? That's Jairus, waiting in the middle of that kind of crisis. But, but Jesus is in town, and Jairus has heard rumors, whispers of miraculous healings that, that must come from God, and he sees a spark of hope in the midnight of his grief and despair and fear, and he takes a chance and he goes to Jairus and he says, Lord, will you just touch her? Just come and, and touch her. And in verse 24, we read these words, and he went with him. Which I think is one of the shortest summaries of the good news of the gospel that I can think of in the scripture, and he went with him. 
friends, that's not just good news for Jairus. That's what God does for us. That's the gospel for you and me. Not that we get our act together and go to Jesus and present our application and prove our, our moral scruples and our religious bona fides and hope we meet the standard. But that Jesus in his incarnation comes to us and he steps into our crisis. I, I, I wonder if Jairus said, uh, thanks Jesus, can we hurry? You know he thought it. But you also know that when Jesus went with him, he breathed a sigh of relief because then he thought God does know, God does care. And he's coming. And that's what makes what happens next so frustrating. Notice how Mark has written this story to that the re, if you read it with empathy, you can feel the frustration because this is an emergency. They need to go now. This girl is near death. And as soon as Jesus says he will go, the crowd surges around them. In verse 25, a woman very quietly drew near because she also was waiting. She'd been waiting 12 years, suffering from a disease that had ruined her life in just about every conceivable way. It was painful. It made her physically sick. But it also destroyed other aspects of her life because in that society, it would have made her ceremonially unclean, which means she would have been excluded from the temple and very likely from the synagogue, which means she was unable to go to church, unable to worship God, and anybody else who came into contact with her would also be unclean, and that means that her disease isolated her from community, from relationships. So that's, that is her plight. It's not simply that she's sick, as bad as that is in and of itself. She's in chronic pain, she has no church, she has no relationship, she has no community, she has no family. This woman appears to be a widow, and if she's not, she's a functional widow. And she's in financial ruin. Verse 26 tells us that she had spent all that she had on physicians and that her condition was just growing worse over time rather than better. One commentator about this says the, it's almost like the physicians were worse than, than the disease. Um, it's certainly, whether that's true or not, it's certainly true that she was, she was growing worse. Now, the text invites us to compare this woman with Jairus, just compare their two situations. So remember, Jairus has it all. He is a symbol of prosperous, thriving, of status, of wealth, of good standing, of power and influence, right? But all this has been interrupted by a crisis and he's, he's waiting in that kind of urgency. But this woman is, it just presents to us this multi-layered chronic brokenness. 
her, her life was like a slow motion collapse of body and spirit and faith. And she was waiting in the exhaustion of someone trying to run a marathon on a treadmill and about to give up. But 27 says she also had heard rumors or reports about Jesus. She heard the same thing Jairus heard. And so she sneaks up on him from behind, right? She doesn't want an audience. She doesn't want to have a conversation with him. She doesn't want to barge in and ask him to do something the way Jairus did. She just wants to touch his garment. She just she wants to touch and leave. Um, one thing that Jason didn't mention um, is that he and I are in the same PhD program, which means that we both at various points in our life have traveled to Chicago and spent um, weeks at a time there in our coursework. And one time when I was in Chicago, I was actually, I got sick. I got fairly sick. And so I went to a med stop and they, they examined me, they um, did a strep test and it turns out I, I had strep throat. And so I was like, okay, well that's not good, but at least we know what it is and we can get some antibiotics and we, we'll get this taken care of and I'll feel better. But then after they did all that, the doctor came in and he was asking me all these questions, you know, family history and all, you know, all of this stuff. And I was sitting there going, like, leave me alone. We know what's wrong. I'll never see you again. You're not going to be my family doctor. I live, at that time I lived in California. I live 2,000 miles away. Just give me a prescription and I will be on my way. Now, that's what this lady wanted from Jesus. She approaches him like a spiritual med stop. She wants to pop in, get a cure, get out. Very transactional very impersonal. And that's why Jesus enters into this little conversation with her that in some ways feels, um, I don't know, a little bit nonsensical or something. He says, who touched me? Which is ridiculous, right? The disciples certainly think so. Um, in 31, the disciples said, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? Jesus, like, we're not social distancing here. We're all, and the crowd is pressing around you. Who didn't touch you? Um, but, but it wasn't a ridiculous, I thought it was a ridiculous question, but it wasn't. Because as usual, Jesus had an agenda that they just couldn't see. We sometimes have difficulty seeing. Jesus is not asking for information. Jesus is disrupting this woman's anonymity, her isolation, her autonomy. Right? By asking this question, he's, what he's essentially doing is saying there are no anonymous, impersonal, transactional interactions with Jesus. 
No such thing. She just wants relief. But Jesus wants something much bigger for her, so much more for her. And so he draws her out. He draws her out and he turns what she had designed to be like a stealth healing into a transformational encounter. Look at verse 33. The woman, knowing what had happened, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Jesus, Jesus invites her in and she just pours out her heart to him and tells him all the pain and all the isolation and all the shame and all the loneliness that she had suffered because of this disease. Now, at this point, any self-respecting Jewish man, especially a well-known rabbi like Jesus, would have slowly backed away. But not Jesus. I mentioned earlier how she, was, she would have been ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And the last thing anybody wanted was close contact with that. Right? So they would have kept their distance. But Jesus does the opposite. Jesus welcomes her. Um, he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Right? That's what Jesus did for her. He embraced the touch of an unclean woman and he took her impurity on himself so she could be clean and he absorbed her shame to, to, to restore her dignity and he lost his power to give her strength. But don't miss this, it's very subtle. He also really gently corrected her. Daughter, your faith has made you well, not your touch has made you well. Jesus is saying, my, my dear, that's not how my power works. My power can't be harnessed and managed. This is not magic. This is a life-changing relationship with the creator and savior of the universe and my healing is so much more than physical. Which is great and it's a lovely story until we remember that there's another daughter in danger. And the t do you see how the text kind of t jerks us back and forth between these two things? And in verse 35, we're reminded that Jairus' daughter is still in grave danger. Right? Imagine Jairus during this encounter. Imagine Jairus where they're on the way to see his daughter, and Jesus stops and peels off to talk and have a lengthy conversation with this anonymous woman. Why? Right? Jesus stopped, why? This woman has been suffering for 12 years. Another hour won't really make that much of a difference to her. But his daughter is at the, at the verge of death. Another hour could literally kill her. 
In fact, it did. And that's what we read in verse 35. Someone comes and says to him, your daughter is dead. Don't trouble the teacher anymore. Now we read this and we think, and you know Jairus thought this, like this is bad triage, right? He treated the chronic patient ahead of the acute patient, right? Any doctor today would be sued, which raises the question, and I mean this, I'm saying this a little bit tongue in cheek, but you'll understand what I mean. I think, did the great physician commit malpractice by allow, he essentially allowed this girl to die? Well, the answer is only it, that's only true if our urgencies and our priorities and our desires dictate the timeline to God. There's a scene in the Lord of the Rings books early on where Frodo, the, the hobbit, is waiting for Gandalf, the wizard, to arrive at um, the, Bilbo's birthday party. If you know the books, you know what I'm talking about. And Frodo's getting impatient. And he finally sees Gandalf kind of coming up the road and around the bend, and he runs to him and he says, you're late. And Gandalf says, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And I think that's what we see here um, with Jesus. My timing is different than yours. My priorities are different than yours. And so he says in verse 36, do not fear, only believe. What he means, I think, is don't trust your own sense of timing. Don't privilege your desires over my priorities. Right? Don't, don't elevate your urgency over my plan. You can't do that because you don't know what I know and you don't yet really understand what I came to do. Jairus, that woman wanted healing. You want your daughter to be well, but I want something bigger. So he says, no, we're still going. And he goes with Jairus to his home, and it's a home that is so much like our world, marked by sickness and death and lament. And they say to him, you know, he, he says, why are you making this commotion weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he goes in, it's verse 41, he goes in and he takes her by the hand. And he said to her something really similar to what I say to my, my littlest guy, Xander, who's eight, every morning when I wake him up to get him ready for school. Wake up, little guy. He says, little girl, wake up. Arise. And it says she did. Immediately the girl got up and began walking. And they were overcome with amazement. No kidding. Friends, this 
instance, the way this story wraps up is the reason why Jesus allowed what seems to us to be an unconscionable delay. He used that intervening time to bless a marginalized woman more than she could have ever imagined. He healed her body, and in the rich soil of his grace, a seed of her superstition blossomed into faith, and he also restored her soul. All, all to remind us that the hurts we feel, listen, the, the longings we crave, the healings that we long for are real and important and really legitimate, but they're also symptoms of a much greater healing that we need. All to remind us that, the, that, 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 that faith is not transa transactional and that our desires of Jesus, the things that we ask him for are often blinkered and self-centered and frankly, far too small. I asked you earlier to think about the question, you know, if only, if only, if only something. How do you fill in the blank? If only I had more money. If only I could get into my dream school. If only I could find a job. If only my job was better. If only I could find a spouse. If only my spouse would understand me and relate to me better. If only we could elect the right people. If only my disease was healed. If only, then things would be okay. Friends, none of these are bad things. These are good things. They're important to think about. But the moral of this story from Mark is that Jesus wants far more than that for us. Jesus wants more than our comfort. He wants transformed, hopeful disciples with the vision to see that this world's normal isn't sufficient and that this world's best isn't good enough. That is on full display with this little girl. Jairus came to him for a fever cure. Jesus gave him a resurrection. He came to get back to normal and Jesus opened a window into a new creation and showed him a savior whose life-giving power is so great Death, our great last enemy, is like nothing more than sleep. I close with this. Back to impatience and waiting and, and, and timing. And I'll tell you this, both as a pastor talking to people and engaging with people and as a human being living life, God's timing will almost always confound us. Sometimes he throws us into a crisis that demands trust now in the whirlwind of confusion and pain. Sometimes he delays. And the hurt gets worse and the cracks in a broken creation seem to widen and waiting feels like languishing. And in both instances, if you're like me, 
you reflexively ask why. Why, oh Lord, are you letting this happen? Why is this disease ravaging communities? Why are good people caught up in racism and violence? Why is my marriage still so hard after all these years? Why do I struggle with depression and anxiety when I have every reason to be content? Why did the person I love betray me? Why did they get sick and die? Now, there's a way to ask the why question in faith to do so as a way that laments brokenness and cries out to God for healing. The Psalms do it all the time. The lament Psalms especially. Why, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? As an expression of authentic and legitimate faith. But if I'm completely honest, when I say why, O oh Lord, I'm usually asking that question from entitlement or arrogance. I want what I want and I want it now. I see no good reason for delay, I say to the creator and sustainer of the universe. What's the wait? And I'm, my friends, I will tell you, if you do that, you will struggle to feel loved by God, not because God doesn't love you, but because when we demand that God perform on our schedule, our waiting hijacks our faith. You may say, okay, I understand what's the antidote to that. Well, the antidote to that, that sort of toxic mindset is pictured in the very last scene, Jesus holding that little girl's hand, raising her from death as easily as waking her from a nap. Friends, hear me. When we are Christ's by faith, when our trust is in him and not in our own achievements or our own morality or our own religious observance, that's how loved you are. Here and now, in the uncertainty of waiting, that's how secure our future is. Not because circumstances are great, they frequently aren't. Not because we get resolution on our terms, we often don't. No, our hope is solid and our comfort is secure because Jesus has our hand and holds it in the midst of our crisis and our waiting with the same life-giving power that healed that woman back to dignity and loved that little girl back to life. And friends, that is our hope as we wait. It's not to get back to normal. It's not a good, comfortable life. It's God's promise to make all things new, to end the reign of sin and death, to heal every disease, to wipe away every tear, to end every oppression and injustice and unrighteousness, to mend his good creation of every scar that our sin has inflicted upon it. Friends, this, this, is, the, this is the gospel writ large, as big as all creation. If it is broken, bent, or ruined by sin, Jesus will restore it. And when he does, it will exceed our deepest longings. Just you wait. 
Let's pray together. Lord, we often wait in anxiety and fear. We often wait in entitlement, not understanding why you don't simply give us what we want and what we think we need. We often wait in shame, uncertain how to relate in a broken world. Lord, I pray that you will help us to wait in hope. Um, Remind us that right here and right now, when we are his by faith, Jesus is holding us. And remind us of his promises to make all things new. And in the meantime, Lord, help us to wait with faithfulness and trust. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.